1: Thanks for joining us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. It is Wednesday, May 26th, um, and uh, we have a lot to talk about, so I want to get right to introducing our panel, starting with Greg Bluestein, who is with us on Wednesdays, a political reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Greg, I would be remiss if I did not say on the air, although it's a day late, happy birthday. <laughs>
2: thank, you, birthday thank you. Thank you. I had a birthday
1: yesterday. Yeah, we
2: celebrated at a swim meet for about four hours with my youngest daughter, uh, but it was a great time. And we went camping over the weekend. We had my wife threw me a little pool party, so it was a great couple days.
1: Um, you, uh, it, our listeners, have expressed a lot of interest in knowing about how the book you're writing on the 2020 election in, in Georgia nationally uh, is coming along. And you said your birthday was an important date in terms of your work on that project.
2: Yeah, the deadline for the book isn't for a few more months, but I set an internal deadline for myself to have the uh, the first the full first draft in by my birthday. And I sent it in the night before my birthday. So it's into the editor. I'm I'm sure we'll be making lots more changes, but it's into the editors right now. And uh, hopefully I'll hear back from them in the next couple of weeks.
1: Well, congratulations on getting a draft done. That that is wonderful news. Uh, we are also joined. Uh, Today by Kyle Hayes. He oversees Peach Pod, which is a terrific podcast that talks about Georgia politics, talks with Georgia political leaders and about Georgia political leaders. Kyle, I, I apologize. I did not get a chance to look at your podcast today to see what's up right now.
3: Well, we've taken a little bit of a step back, particularly from the day-to-day news. Um, We're really interested in these questions about how Democrats and Republicans are positioning themselves as we head to 2022 and the big blockbuster event of Georgia politics coming later this year, the redistricting session. Um, So we're focused on those things for now, and and thanks for having me again.
1: Yeah, yeah, another person who is going to be laser-focused on the redistricting when eventually it starts is uh, State Senator Kim Jackson, Democrat from Stone Mountain. I don't think—the last time you were on, uh, uh, I don't think we uh, mentioned the fact that you are an ordained Episcopal priest, uh, Kim, and you said right before the show went on, you told us about your ministry. I think it's important you share our, with our listeners—
4: Yeah, thanks, Bill, and thanks for having me on. I um, am really grateful to serve as the lead pastor or the vicar, as we call it in the Episcopal Church, for the Church of the Common Ground, which is a church that serves people who sleep outside on the streets of Atlanta, many of whom sleep literally right across the street from the Capitol. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Those of us who have covered the Capitol or are familiar with the Capitol have seen uh, many of the people you minister to, and we've seen them there for many, many years, as you say, right across the street from the front entrance, those steps that lead up to the second floor entrance of the state capitol. And uh, because this show is all about how we make connections among people, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, share political philosophies or not. Julianne Thompson, Republican political strategist in Georgia, who we're very glad is back on the show. You, in hearing about Kim's work, Julianne, said you have a connection to what she's doing now.
0: Absolutely. Um, First of all, as I said to, to Kim before the show, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. It's such an extremely important ministry. My grandmother um, was also a minister. Uh, She did inner city work in the city of Cleveland, Ohio for many years uh, and worked with the homeless, worked with just a a large contingency of, of people in the inner city and worked very hard and built a church. And unfortunately, at the time, that, that she was alive and involved in the ministry. It wasn't as friendly toward women as it is now. And mm-hmm. after she built her church to a, a certain point, a, a very large congregation, the church that she was with actually took her church from her and gave it to a man. And, um, you know, she continued to work. She, as a, I guess you could call it an inner city missionary because the actual uh, pastorship of the church was taken from her. So, I really admire what you're doing, and and thank you again.
1: Uh, Kim, I got to ask you. I assume the Episcopal Church has progressed far beyond those days, or I hope so.
4: Yes, indeed. But it it is women like Julian's grandmother who paved the way for me to be able to do this ministry, and so um, what a powerful story, a, a sad yeah. ending, but I'm grateful to continue in that legacy of so many women who have um, taken on this really hard and, and important work of engaging with people who live outside.
1: Oh, thank you. I love, thank you for that exchange. I really enjoyed hearing about that. Um, all right, Greg Bluestein, uh, let's start with a, a story uh, about Governor Kemp, and COVID, Uh, we know that cases of COVID in Georgia, hospitalizations in Georgia, way, way down across the country. The virus is receding in many areas. There are still pockets where there are significant problems. Um, But there's been a lot of talk about whether or not, as we reopen uh, in the state, whether there should be some form of vaccine passport that will assure a business owner that his employees have been vaccinated, walking into a store, getting on an airplane—should there be some sort of vaccine passport? Yesterday, Governor Kemp preempted that conversation, at least for public institutions in Georgia. Yes.
2: Yes, um, and he—he he is not a pioneer here. There's about a dozen or other so other states uh, Republican governors who have who've signed legislation or similar executive orders. That do this, but what the governor did was uh, he signed an executive order that um, that bans state government from requiring a vaccine against the coronavirus, so it restricts the use of so called vaccine passports that applies to all public state agencies, including the higher education system, um, UGA Georgia Tech, and uh, the K 12 um, school system, ex- specifically for coronavirus vaccines, not for not for um. Not for the other vaccines that are already required by the K through 12 system, but specifically for coronavirus, he still encouraged Georgians to go get, go out and get their coronavirus vaccines, and millions already have. Um, but he says that it should not be mandatory in order to enjoy the benefits of of, of the state government.
1: Um, Julianne, I at a time when schools are uh, back in session, taking you know many of them, of course, closing for summer, but they'll be back in the fall. Um, how are you feeling about the fact that there shouldn't be some requirement that the teachers in a school, perhaps the students in the school, uh, and others should should be able to show they have been vaccinated?
0: Well, first of all, I think that, it, you know, it's a very important question. I do think vaccines are important, but I also know that there are concerns out there about safety, real concerns among people. And I don't think that you can marginalize everyone who makes the decision to, forego the COVID vaccine. Um, That being said, as I stated before, I do think vaccines are important and and I think that they need to be made uh, readily available, which they are. Uh, So there really isn't an excuse for anyone that wants to protect themselves against COVID to be able to do so. But, you know, this is walking a very thin line because I think there's also a campaign out there to paint anyone concerned about vaccine, vaccine safety as a fringe anti-vaxxer. And I think that's unfair and it's not going to work. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard from a, from a large amount of people across the state of Georgia, across party lines, that they agree with the governor's decision and they've actually been calling for it since DeSantis said it in Florida, uh, and the governor specifically speaking to public institutions and, and travel. His mandate does not extend to privately owned businesses or private education who can set their own rules. Um, and, and just following on up on what Greg said, yes, it, it, this is specifically about the COVID vaccine. Uh, But public schools and private schools do offer religious and philosophical waivers for those other vaccines as well. So this isn't anything that's specifically new to the COVID vaccine.
4: Yeah, I'll just say that, you know, when I read the governor's statement, uh, vaccination is a personal decision between each citizen and a medical professional, not the state governor. As someone who has worked for a long time in uh, women's choice issues, those words sounded really, really familiar um, in terms of the importance of individual citizens being able to make a medical decision with a medical professional and the state saying outside of it. So I I just hope that the governor will hear his own words and and extend that to women's ability to make those personal decisions for themselves about how their bodies operate in the world. Um, But I also want to add that vaccination, unlike issues like abortion and vaccination actually is about protecting all of us. Um, We are all healthier, we are all safer when we get vaccinated. And so while I understand not requiring a passport, I stand with the governor in encouraging and urging all citizens who are able to go and get get the vaccine We understand that there are some people who are immunocompromised or for other reasons may not be able to get it. But for everyone who is, I I stand with the governor in encouraging people to please go get the COVID vaccine so we can continue um, to resume a life that we are more accustomed to.
1: Kyle, um, one of the things that I found interesting about this, without regard to the very specific issue of whether people – Uh, should be able to prove they're vaccinated. I'd like to know when I walk into a restaurant or, more important, if I get in an airplane, whether people around me are vaccinated. Um, But, Kyle, this is part of this Republican playbook that is developed across the country uh, that uh, includes things like... um, You know, governors condemning critical race theory is the other big one that Governor Kemp uh, signed off on, uh, signed into this week. And this is yet another one, as Greg Bluestein pointed out, Republicans preparing for the 2022 election cycle who are, I think, looking at messaging they think will be consistent and allow them to some extent to nationalize the 2022 election cycle. Yes, Kyle?
3: Yeah, and I have this sort of ongoing concern across a lot of these issues that substantive policy and governing issues at hand here are going to become secondary to the political messaging concerns of, of leading politicians here. Because, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that when, you know, Governor Kemp's been a consistent proponent of schools reopening, presumably we're going to have most students in the classroom again in the fall after the summer break. And kids, especially younger kids who may not at the time have vaccine access are going to be one of the only groups of people in society we ask to congregate together in a large setting without having had vaccine access, you know, unless they get approval. And so that's why it was a little surprising for me to school for schools to be in this order, because it feels like there's still some governing decisions that have to be made about reopening and vaccines. And I wouldn't have wanted to put it into this political messaging environment um, where the concerns seem you know, really far from the actual governing necessities.
1: Greg, weigh in on this notion of a nationalized ca- uh, effort among Republican candidates in next year's cycle.
2: Yeah, and, and and again, you're seeing this. Um, you're seeing Governor Kemp join on other kind of follow through with, with other Republican governors are doing around around the nation, um, whether it be with critical race theory, um, uh, highlighting. Uh, uh, high right, high rates of crime, higher rates of crime in, in big cities uh, within their jurisdictions. Uh, the governor knows he needs to shore up uh, his weak spots with the conservative base, especially after his falling out with former President Trump after he refused to overturn the election results in, in Georgia in November. Um, so he's, he's basically, you know, you can kind of see um, as Florida goes, as Texas goes, even some states like Montana, uh, as some of these states are are, are are veering, the governor is following through in Georgia, too, and getting headlines and, and being able to you know, bring talking points back. Um, and there's a big meeting for him next week. It's the state GOP meeting down in Jekyll Island. And so he'll have some fresh red meat to bring uh, activists who have been very skeptical of him in recent months.
1: Julianne, I'd I'd like you to, I'd love to hear your take on that. I mean, you've been involved deeply in Georgia Republican politics for a number of years now, um, and um, and so I, where do you think uh, Governor Kemp stands as he gets messages like this out there? Uh, certainly, trying to make sure the base knows who he is and where he stands on issues like this. Um, how much dissension is he going to face down at the Jekyll Island meeting?
0: Well, that remains to be seen. Um, I I don't think that there is anything new about Governor Kemp's conservative stances. I mean, he's always governed as a very conservative governor from the very beginning. He campaigned as a conservative governor, and that's the way that he has governed. Um, The falling out between former President Trump and Governor Kemp is what has caused the divide uh, between the governor and the base of the Georgia Republican Party, um, not any type of uh, getting away from any sort of conservative policies that he supported in the past. He has been consistent on those policies. Um, next week is going to be very interesting. I I do believe that in recent days, govern, Governor Kemp has sort of closed that divide that he has had with a lot of the Georgia Republican Party base. And keep in mind um, that the base of the Georgia Republican Party, the activist, just as the activist with the Georgia Democratic Party, doesn't necessarily mirror the Republican electorate as a whole. And um, I, Governor Kemp has been extremely popular with the Republican electorate as a whole. So I do believe he is going into the race in a good position. And I I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens next week. But I do believe he's closed a lot of that divide in recent days.
1: So, uh, uh, Kyle, I do not want to just kind of move quickly past Kim Jackson's comments about the statement the governor made in relation to the vaccine, uh, whether we need passports of some sort or not. I want to read you the exact quote. While I continue to urge all Jack Georgians to get vaccinated so we continue our momentum of putting the COVID pandemic in the rear view, vaccination is a personal decision between each citizen and a medical professional, not the state government. Kyle, I'm not sure who crafted that statement for the governor, But I think they may be rethinking whether that was the best way to frame this particular issue when it comes in in this case and as Kim Jackson points out in terms of the right to choose.
3: Yeah, I think that we're going to hear that statement again. And within this lens, it it is probably something that's going to live on. You know, that's the thing actually that piques my interest a little bit about whether this was substantive or political, because if you're writing political messaging, you may think, oh, that's a a nice way to sort of turn around a phrase that has been used against us politically previously. Whereas, you know, if you're thinking about the substantive issues, you may approach it differently. Um, Yeah, I think we're going to hear that phrase uh, from Democrats about other issues going forward.
4: Right. I mean, you've already heard that that phrase from Democrats for a very long time when it comes to women being able to make choices uh, with their medical professionals. Uh, but I, I also think what we're seeing is that the Republican Party and, and Democrats have struggled with this at times, too are really struggling to figure out how to be consistent about their messaging, um, particularly when it comes to hot-button issues. So um, I I watched this happen all uh, session long as suddenly issues around local control, which Republicans heretofore have been very strong on local control. But this session, we watched uh, governor. We watched Republicans step in and make defunding the police, which was not actually a thing anybody was trying to do. But they took away control from local governors, from governments, from making decisions about their own police forces. So consistency in messaging um, is an issue that Republicans are going to be really they struggle with now, and I think they're going to continue to struggle with as they're trying to make some impact on these hot button issues that really do kind of raise up the fervor of their base.
1: So I do want to say one thing about that, Kim. I think you're certainly correct that defund the police is not, at this moment, the uh, biggest message from progressives, from liberals about how to deal with police departments. But Greg, I think it is fair to say that at least initially, until somebody thought that this was going to have a lot of backlash, there were uh, liberals saying that phrase. That's where it came from, defund the police. So I just want to be clear That at least at one point that was a message that some people were advocating, but Greg, they've moved away from it.
2: Yeah, early on in the protests for social justice, uh, you you heard that rallying cry, and you you still hear it sometimes from activists, of course. uh, But there was no significant debate. Um, I know that that, the Republican lawmakers who brought up the uh, who who endorsed the defund. This uh, this legislation that Senator Jackson is talking about uh, mentioned that there was talk in Athens, Clark County, and in Atlanta, but there was no significant debate and, and no no vote to defund the police in either of those jurisdictions.
1: And I think the larger point that you make, Kim, uh, which is how uh, Republicans at the state legislature (laughs) have decided to dip into telling local jurisdictions how to uh, run their businesses in in some cases. For instance, in this case of saying no city can reduce its police budget by more than 5 percent is an example of exactly of what your much more uh, uh, pertinent point was. I I just wanted to correct that other part of it. Let's let's move on. Uh, Greg – As we watch the possibility that Kasim Reed really may be about to jump into the Atlanta mayor's race, and as we see that one of the things that he has turned on his hand-picked candidate, uh, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, in the election, uh, how he has now turned a bit against her in terms of her handling of violence in the city of Atlanta, which will become a dominant issue in the mayor's race— you uh, point out in uh, an article in the AJC, you and your colleagues in in the Jolt, that uh, Governor Kemp has made it clear that crime in Atlanta, at metro area uh, largely, is going to be another issue they want to take on in uh, next year's races.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, and you saw it even this week with the governor announcing $5 million in emergency funding, for uh, state law enforcement officials to help, help uh, combat rising crime rates in the city of Atlanta. Um, you've heard it from lawmakers far from Atlanta's city limits. Um, we were just talking about that defund the police legislation that was introduced by Houston Gaines, who is a Republican lawmaker from Athens. Um, you've heard it from, I heard it yesterday when Butch Miller, uh, one of the most powerful Republicans in the legislature, announced uh, his campaign for Lieutenant Governor. What did he bring up? He brought up rising crime rates in Atlanta. And certainly Attorney General Chris Carr um, is going to be highlighting uh, state efforts to combat crime um, in his reelection campaign. So you're seeing uh, Republicans uh, from, from Metro Atlanta and f- well beyond uh, bring up rising crime rates as a way to um, combat uh, not just, of course, not just try to combat crime, but also uh, give a salient message to their voters. To try to win back suburban Atlantans and also uh, stem, blunt the growing Democratic uh, uh, momentum, I, I should say, uh, after the November elections and the January runoffs.
1: It, uh, I want everybody to weigh in on this, but if it's okay, Kim, I'll start with you. Um, it does feel like when it comes to looking at crime in Atlanta, which we know has gotten terribly out of control, the gun violence here has been atrocious. Uh, it does feel to me, and I certainly am willing to be corrected, that to an extent, Mayor Bottoms has given uh, Republicans and other critics like Kasim Reed himself an opening for really going after this issue. I, I think it's fair to say that she has perhaps not been as proactive publicly uh, in uh, in in coming to terms with how to fight the violence that's unfolding in Atlanta. She has not been a, a terribly strong presence on this issue. And I do think it's given Republicans, and as I said, even uh, some people who want to run for uh, mayor, the chance to uh, jump in with that issue. Do you think I'm wrong, Kim? Kim?
4: You know, I'm I'm actually not interested in in critiquing Keisha Lance Bottom on this issue because I think it's unfair to put the weight of criminality in Atlanta on a mayor on one person. Um, and actually, I want to talk about my colleagues here um, under the gold dome who have done nothing actually to really help. Um, even the proposals that are being offered, um, just ultimately add more problems to the city of Atlanta as opposed to helping. But I'm thinking specifically about legislation that we have sitting on my desk right now that would prohibit Atlanta from being able to destroy guns that they confiscate uh, through crimes. Um, This legislation would say you have to sell those guns back. Um, And, you know, one of the ways that we know we can prevent gun violence is by having fewer criminals with guns. But um, Republicans are offering legislation that would return those guns to the street instead of allowing them to be destroyed. Um, So there there are these policies that we could take on that would actually be helpful. And uh, instead, we are much more content with, I think, pointing fingers at one particular person um, and and not addressing issues uh, like ongoing poverty, um, high unemployment rates. I mean, all of these things contribute to crime, and all of these things are things that we can point to the state as having responsibility for, much more so than I think the mayor does. Julianne? Oh, well, most definitely
0: it's a hot-button issue, and there's there's absolutely no doubt that public safety is a winning strategy for Republicans. Um, the problem's real, and it's affecting the quality of life of people around the state who live in areas that are affected by rising crime rates, and um, especially in areas where law enforcement has been marginalized, and they have. And you know, many people that I've spoken with in the city of Atlanta, specifically in Buckhead, are, are extremely concerned and want to see a strong law enforcement presence and to be able, you know, we talked about, we've talked about um, the city of Buckhead before and, you know, the controversy surrounding that, will that be successful? I think that people um, like the people in Buckhead, citizens in Buckhead want to be able to govern on what is best for their community and not depend on decisions coming out of um, Atlanta City Hall Uh, In in that particular instance, you have two challenges though. Um, You want law enforcement to feel a sense of community with those they serve. And that comes with living in the community they serve and being able to afford to raise their family there. And the challenge for the city of Buckhead um, with having their own police department is will law enforcement ever be able to have that camaraderie with, with the city of Buckhead because will they be able to afford to live there? And um, but specifically talking about the city of Atlanta, even though local elections are nonpartisan, party affiliation still plays a really big role. And I think you're going to see a real push to get away from that as much as uh, as much as possible, because so many people in Atlanta want municipal leaders whose main concerns are the issues that affect the everyday lives of Atlantans and not leaders who play to a particular base or have larger party aspirations. So that is going to be an ongoing challenge moving forward, because I think people want to rally around a strong leader and not around a party when it comes to these municipal elections, specifically in the city of Atlanta. Yeah, I'm interested,
3: you know, on the state level about who the audience for this focus on crime is going to be for leading Republican politicians, whether this is going to be sort of a performative exercise or whether Governor Kemp might see some value in pulling together substantive governing bodies, you know, for instance, pulling together a task force and maybe proposing some real legislation in the next legislative session that would address these issues. I think, you know, the, on the performative side, i i remembering back to Kelly Loeffler's campaign where she was in a spat with her own WNBA team, where she was introducing messaging legislation that really didn't have enforcement mechanisms in it. And her main communications goal in all of that appeared to be driving up her her name recognition and her visibility on Fox News. I think, though, if you're Governor Kemp and you're looking to win back some of the suburban voters that have left the Republican Party, you might want to think about approaching the issue differently because for a lot of people growing up in more diverse communities or for people who are younger, their vision of, of crime may not harken back to the 80s and 90s and the crime waves in big cities, but they may have been more exposed to the more aggressive policing that has been policy for the last couple decades. And this is a thought that I, I borrow from the Ezra Klein podcast with James Foreman Jr., a Yale professor. And so I just think that this – the the parameters of this issue around crime may play out differently than they have in the past.
1: I think that's a really fascinating observation, Kyle, and I appreciate your making it. I got to get to a break, Greg, but I want you to put a period on this part of our conversation.
2: Yes, um, we're certainly going to hear more about this between now and 2022. Um, And it's not just about the governor's longstanding Uh, feud with Atlanta Mayor (laughs) Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Um, And as we noted, too, it's not just conservatives bringing this up. You're hearing um, liberal candidates for Atlanta mayor, and you're hearing Democratic leaders from around Metro Atlanta also bring up the fact that something more needs to be done to, to rein in rising crime rates.
1: All right, um, Bluestein gets the last word for this segment because yesterday was his birthday, so why shouldn't he? Uh, we're going to take a break right now. We'll be back in just a minute with more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Kyle Hayes, uh, Peach Pod, Julianne Thompson, Republican strategist, Senator Kim Jackson, Democrat from Stone Mountain, and Greg Bluestein of course, political reporter at the AJC, uh, join me. I want to make one quick uh, message. Uh, I know many of you listen to this show on the radio. You listen to us often live at 9 in the morning, and then some people listen to the 2 o'clock show. Uh, some of you say you listen to both of them. I think that's going a little overboard, but thank you for that. Um, but I also know that a great many people listen on, to our podcast, and we were informed yesterday That Political Rewind is in the top 20 for for the first quarter of 2021, was in the top 20 of NPR station podcasts, top 20. And that, I think, is a tribute to the remarkable panelists we are able to assemble for this show, like the people who are on today, as well as to the team who I am lucky enough to get to work with every day. Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer. Sam Bermastaws, our producer. Amelia Brock, our senior producer. And of course, it also tells you that politics, Georgia is a real, real hotbed of politics nationwide because a lot of those podcast listeners are not here in Georgia. They're around the country. So we're very proud that uh, people feel that we are worthy of their attention. All right, Julianne Thompson, you're the Republican on this panel. You are also, you came into Republican politics from a pretty conservative place. You are a founder of one of the uh, biggest uh, uh, Tea Party groups back uh, in around in 2010 or so. Um, And you've watched the party adopt more and more conservative values, and you've seen some in the party move even further and further to the right, and of course— I'm talking about Marjorie Taylor (laughs) Greene. Yesterday on the show, we uh, said no Republican leader in Congress has criticized, condemned Marjorie Taylor Greene for comparing mask mandates with Nazis, Germany's demonization and, and ultimate efforts to wipe out the Jewish people. And right after the show, Kevin McCarthy finally condemned her fairly strongly but didn't indicate there, he, there's going to be any action taken against her. Julianne, what the heck is going on with Republicans and and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene?
0: Well, well, first, um, first let me just say I, I didn't begin politics in the Tea Party. I actually began when I was 22 years old when I graduated from college and went to work on Capitol Hill in the U.S. House Judiciary Committee and Subcommittee on the Constitution. And then became the press secretary of the Georgia Republican Party. It wasn't until uh, it wasn't until 20, 2009 uh, that that I became involved in the Tea Party, um, and that had to do with what I felt was the Republican Party getting away from constitutional issues. So I just wanted to to clarify that that the Tea Party wasn't my start in um, in politics, but. With regard to Marjorie Taylor Greene and her comparison between Nazis and the mask mandate, there's, for, first of all, let me say there is no wedge between House leadership and the Republican caucus on this issue. There's no wedge between Republican leaders and the Republican base on this issue. It was an appalling comparison. GOP leadership has, is in agreement on that. She was wrong, and she needs to apologize for her statement.
1: Um, Kim, uh, the question is, why does it take almost a week for Republicans to speak out? I mean, are they putting their fingers, wetting their fingers and putting them to the wind to make sure that people really are offended by your comment? It took McCarthy a long time to get around to saying anything about this.
4: It did take him a long time, and and I don't actually pretend to understand the minds of Republicans, although I think that's a part of my job is to try to, Um, and and I I will say that um – at least if, if this were on my side, I think I would give it a little time to see is it useful to give this more air, right? So by coming out and condemning her, we, we give her more air, we give her more spotlight, and uh, and I could see some people trying to make those calculations. That's my kind of generous read of it. Um, but fundamentally, I'm glad to hear Julianne on this, on this radio show and Kevin um, McCarthy to come out very clearly and explicitly say, this is wrong, this is unacceptable, and we As a GOP, don't stand with her on this issue. Uh, A late apology is better than none. Let's be clear about that.
1: Greg
2: Bluestein. Yeah, um, the Washington Post has this headline today or yesterday that sums it up. The GOP has no clue what to do about Marjorie Taylor Mm -hmm. Greene. They don't. Um, And and frankly, neither, to Senator Jackson's point, neither do the media. We don't know how to cover um, her. We don't know whether to ignore Comments like this, tweets like this, not to give them oxygen, or by not giving them oxygen, do we let her uh, feel like um, you know that what she's saying about the Holocaust is 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 appropriate, right? Um, and for people like me and maybe like you too, Bill, who lost branches of our family to the Nazi regime, um, it's it's hard to bite your tongue when you see her comparing mass efforts to inoculate people about a, against the deadly virus with a systemic murder of 6 million Jews. Um, and um you know and there, there's appropriate times to speak out and not but this is exactly what she wants and that's true too. Uh, she is uh, she, I'm sure she got a whole new round of, of small dollar donors. Um she certainly got a lot of attention and she's she led um several newscasts last night. So it's just uh, I don't know the great, the right answer but I know I do know that we need to condemn her when she makes comments like that. She is she is one of George's 14 uh, Congress members, and we would do the same thing, and we did do the same thing when Democratic members of of, of Congress made similar remarks, or, or, or com- yeah. somewhat comparable remarks, I should say.
1: Well, I mean, going back a very long way, Democrat Cynthia McKinney certainly came under fire yeah, from the media for of. making— Uh, Yeah, entirely controversial comments, offensive comments like that. All right, Kyle, so Greg makes a really good point. And in fact, I actually expressed it on the show a couple days ago. I said, we really don't like giving oxygen to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, Why do we want to spread what she has to say? And so as an example, Kyle, when Marjorie Taylor Greene chased Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez down a hallway in the U.S. Capitol, just yelling at her about her uh, support for Antifa, Black Lives Matter. We ignored it because it seemed so clearly to be just an attention-grabbing device. Marjorie Taylor Greene thinking to herself, gee, I haven't been in the news lately. (laughs) Maybe if I chase somebody down the hall, as I did with the student from Parkland uh, uh, that got me attention in the first place, maybe this will do it. We ignored it. But as Greg points out, Kyle, when you start making comparisons between what's happening in this country and Nazi Germany and go on to evoke the image of Jews being rounded up in boxcars and sent to the ovens, you can't ignore that.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the comments were clearly reprehensible. They were unacceptable. I do kind of come back to Republican Party infrastructure, particularly the party infrastructure in Congress, about this issue. And this, I think, is a really profound demonstration of how weak that party infrastructure in Congress is. You know, the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, he basically has no leverage over Green. She doesn't want some kind of committee chairmanship. She doesn't want a position in party leadership. You know, she didn't. You know, find her way out of the news when she was stripped of her committee her committee assignments by Democrats, and for Republicans, I do think they need to ask themselves when they're recruiting candidates and and helping people get ready to run how you deal with this new group of people who run for office with the what I think is a pretty clear goal to just become a far right political celebrity. I mean when you look at somebody like Marjorie Taylor Green, after all of this, she's going to be in Dalton on Thursday at a rally with Congressman Matt Gates, who's currently under an investigation about an alleged relationship with a 17-year-old. And she, I think, views that as uh, bolstering her brand to the people she wants to be a celebrity for. And I think Republicans have to figure out ways to sort of discourage those people from getting elected positions.
1: Well, OK, so Julianne, in that regard, here's my question. Uh, we're gonna start. We've talked about redistricting briefly at the beginning of the show. We're gonna spend a great deal of time talking about it in the months ahead. So we know that Republicans, uh, Georgia Republicans, would be are, are going to look at the what's happening up in the in, in the North Metro area. Sixth District, Lucy McBath, Seventh District, Carolyn Bordeaux, two Democrats now hold those seats. They wanna get at least one of them back and what there's been some reporting is it, that we're going to try to do is choose one to win back. But then they look a little further north to the 14th, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and have to figure out, do we want to continue? Is there anything we can do about her in that district? Because she's one of us in party name, but she's a continual embarrassment and in the long run is doing us no good. It, but is she safe?
0: that remains to be seen i mean i'm not exactly sure how they're going to redraw the districts uh and you know uh, precisely where she lives in the 14th i'm not sure um i i would doubt very seriously that they're going to try to draw her out of the district um but ultimately it's you know ultimately it's a voting issue and if she remains in the 14th district and she runs for re-election, which in all likelihood she will, if the citizens of the 14th district re-elect her, there's really nothing, you know, that that redistricting can, can solve where that's concerned. So, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, like Greg said, it's a very, very difficult subject. How do you deal with specific members of Congress, whether on the right You have Marjorie Taylor Greene on the left. You have members of the squad and, you know, leadership on both sides sometimes have a difficult time dealing with those particular. I know that Kim is shaking her head and she disagrees with me, but (laughs) members leadership on both sides have a very difficult time dealing with outspoken members that really play to a certain contingency of the base. And ultimately, Ultimately, this is just a question for the voters.
3: You know, I just All want right, to
1: jump so in, Kim, it. I, of course. Yeah,
4: just just really quick. I I don't think it's a fair comparison to compare the squad with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um what what we have is somebody who I think is actually incredibly dangerous to the Republican Party and to our democracy. Um in Marjorie Taylor Greene because of the the information that she is spouting and the way that she continues to promulgate lies and and say things that are ultimately really dangerous and harmful to people. So I just don't think that's a fair comparison.
1: And Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably way over the edge. I do think Democrats have struggled at times with figuring out how to respond to Elon uh, 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 Omer about her some of the things that she's said and and I do think that's been an issue at times. But it isn't Marjorie Taylor Greene. Go ahead, Julianne.
0: <laughs> no, and and I am not upholding for what Marjorie Taylor Greene has said. No, so of course please not. don't take that as don't take this as me doing that. But here is where I disagree with Kim. When it comes to Ilhan Omar, I mean, I'm looking at an article right now in the Jerusalem Post that is referring to her as the most anti-Semitic member of Congress. I mean, she, you know, she alleged that that Jews are buying their influence and said it's all about the Benjamin. She accused Israel of having hypnotized the world. I could go on and on and on with a lot of her statements, but I won't. But I, I will say this. There is a comparison to be made with the fact that both of these members of Congress are outspoken and leaderships on both sides have a very difficult time dealing with them.
1: Uh, I, I, I'm going to do, I, uh, Julianne, thank you for that, uh, the Jerusalem Post piece. I, it's one of those moments that I think we will uh, look at more carefully and tomorrow be able to talk about exactly what it, it, Ilan Omar has, has said in, in that regard. But th- thank you for that. Greg Blustein, I got to get to a break. So, when we come back, uh, I want to ask you to lead the conversation on a really remarkable tribute that is unfolding today for C.T. Vivian in a place you might least expect it to be happening. We'll do that and more when Political Rewind continues. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Hey, Buddy Darden's on our show tomorrow, and I point that out today because so many of you out there are really always happy when you hear from uh, Buddy. Leo Smith will be with us, so will Riley Bunch from CNHI News and Kevin Riley. Uh, Before we talk about C.T., Vivian, Greg Bluestein, we have a Republican candidate for the seat that Jeff Duncan is vacating as lieutenant governor. Yep, that's
2: Butch Miller, and he says he's in it no matter what, even if uh, someone else comes in with Donald Trump's endorsement. He said... He told me yesterday he's in it unless Jesus comes back and runs for the seat. So uh, expect Mitch <laughs> Miller to qualify next year.
1: Um, we, we'll be more specific. If somebody else gets Donald Trump's endorsement, that would be, he's talking uh, about somebody quite specifically.
2: Yeah, Bert Jones, a fellow state senator. Yeah. Um, he's from Jackson, Georgia, who is looking at running and uh, recently went to Mar-a-Lago uh, and posed for a picture with the former president.
1: Okay, but he he is, uh, Burt Jones has been mentioned as running for virtually every statewide seat on the ballot next year. We'll see what he decides to do. Uh, Kim, 60 years ago, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian were on a freedom ride. They got to Jackson, Mississippi. They were pulled off the bus. They were thrown into jail and beaten. Uh, before they actually were beaten, or maybe, I don't really know the, the, the sequence, but one of the things that was remarkable about that is they, that uh, we, there's the picture of C.T., the mugshot of C.T. Vivian. He's smiling, and so is John Lewis. Sixty years later today, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, has declared it C.T. Vivian Day. That is so meaningful.
4: It's such a wonderful honor and a sign that we can move, that we can we can change that our Southern cities are not necessarily stuck um, in a past in which racism um, has, has been the kind of law of the day. So um, I'm grateful. I, I feel like I very much stand in the legacy of C.T. Vivian um, folks on the radio can't see. I am actually wearing a collar um, just in the same kind of collar that he was wearing in that picture where he was smiling for that mugshot, oh. a clergy collar that looks just like him in honor of him, recognizing that I very much stand in his legacy as, a clergy person who's very clear that our faith compels us to get out and do something, to take action and stand up against injustice. And so to the Vivian family, um, I hope that this day is a day, a celebration for them as well, and just so very grateful for his legacy and for, the, for his willingness to literally put his body on the line to stand up for justice. It's, it, this is a really wonderful thing, and I'm grateful for the people of Jackson as well.
1: Um, his son Al was just on Political Rewind talking about his father's legacy about a week or so ago, and that's available. You can listen to that online or at our podcast. Kyle, your thoughts about this remarkable turn of events in the south of today?
3: Yeah, it is a remarkable moment in history. Um, I, I went back and I was actually reading um, you know, some, some reports about this, and I was sort of brought back to this place that in some ways there we've made tremendous progress on a lot of these issues on on voting on on racial equity in this country but we certainly haven't made enough progress and there were some echoes i think to the demonstrations that we've seen over the last year to the to what was happening in the in the 60s that ct vivian was participating in and um My hope is that it doesn't take 60 years for the people fighting for justice today for them to get the kind of recognition that they deserve.
1: Julianne, um, put this in a a context for us, if you don't mind. Um, How – I mean, I'm not even sure quite how to ask this question, but at a time when governors around the country, Republicans, are talking about banning critical race theory, or even more – uh, some condemning a uh, diversity, inclusion and equity training, or Dei, diversity equity inclusion training. it It feels like there's not as much room for celebrating uh, someone like a CT Vivian. Have I, am I wrong about that?
0: Yes, I think you are. Um, I first of all, I, I think that there is a big difference between bringing everyone together and celebrating diversity and making proclamations that are a long time in coming like this one, this is a wonderful uh, turning point for the state of Mississippi and uh, an amazing time in history. And I agree with everything that Kim said about it and and I'm so happy that they did it. Um, But I think that when you're talking about Republican governors that disagree with some parts of the policies of some of these uh, different uh, different issues that are being brought forward, and the way the policies are being presented, um, with you know, with certain uh, certain curriculums that that tell white children you are part of an oppressive race, uh, I, I think that that is wrong, and I think it's a wrong way to approach it. Um, and so that is where the disagreement is in. It is not in the fact that we need to be coming together. It is not in the fact that there needs to be more diversity, and it's not in the fact. That we need to sit down and have more conversations it's in the fact that you do not you do not then go and oppress someone who has who is working hard to try to bring people together just because they happen to be a certain race and that race is white and i think that that is wrong to do to children and that's why there are a lot of people that are opposed to quote unquote critical race theory
1: I, I don't mean – we're getting running short. And by the way, we're going to continue doing conversations about what critical race theory is and isn't in the weeks ahead because it's an important conversation. We're really running low, but I want to give you one last chance at this one, the celebration of C.T. Vivian, Greg.
2: Yeah, I'm looking at the mugshot um, where he was arrested 60 years and uh, two days ago, um, and he's in a remarkable mugshot. He's smiling. Um, and it just reminds us of, of of his legacy and how important it is to have at least not not maybe not closure, uh, but a celebration of 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 a remarkable person in the place where sixty years ago today, or two days ago, I should say, um, you know uh, 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 such a seminal moment happened. so it's it's neat to see that and it it's neat to see um, officials from from parts of the deep south um, that didn't celebrate his legacy at all generations ago do that
1: now so um we are out of time for today's show i'm so happy about this celebration of ct vivian and i really have to say i i apologize in a way i don't think this was the time for me to introduce the question about things like uh, uh critical race theory i don't want to take anything away from a wonderful day for C.T. Vivian's family. We'll get to all that other stuff in the weeks ahead on Political Rewind. We're out of time. Thank you so much, State Senator Kim Jackson, Kyle Hayes, Greg Bluestein, and Julianne Thompson for a fascinating conversation. We're back tomorrow on Political Rewind.